about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hello, my name is Rachel. We'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible on your phone, there's a Pew Bible. It's on page 982. So 7, 13 to 17. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Our next reading is Matthew chapter 1. It's on page 1374 of the Pew Bibles. It's verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Thanks, Rachel. Let's pray again. Lord, we do wait for you. And in your word, we put our hope. Amen. Well, in this season of Advent, uh, we're taking some time to understand and kind of dwell upon some of the prophecies of Jesus' birth in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, prophets. Um, And we're doing that so that we can approach Christmas with a kind of sharper focus on what it is about. And we begin today with the, the, the most famous, I think, and also probably the strangest of all such prophecies. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. A lot of people have heard of this one. Uh, Even if you're really new to Christianity, you probably know that Christians believe something about a virgin birth. Well, this is what we're looking at. What is 
What's the special significance of this prophecy? Um, why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary? Uh, does it have any importance for us today? And how can this prophecy sharper, sharpen our focus for Christmas? So what we're going to do is I'm going to look first at this prophecy in its original context in Isaiah 7, and then we're going to think about how it applies to Jesus and what that, what that all adds up to for us. So let's first look back at the origin of this prophecy, uh, which we heard about in our first reading from the book of Isaiah. Okay, so it's the year 730 BC, or thereabouts, around then. And the kingdom of Judah is in grave danger. So if you know the history of Israel, which you don't have to, I'm about to tell you the key, key fact, basically it's one kingdom and then under Solomon's son Rehoboam, it breaks into two. And there's a southern kingdom, Judah, and a northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim. It gets different names, but it's all a bit confusing. But basically, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah is in real danger because uh, its neighbours to the north, Aram, which is modern-day Syria, and the northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim, they have made an alliance... And they've begun to march south so that Judah is in danger. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, we're told that the hearts of Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This is the situation. Judah and its king are freaking out because there's armies marching upon them. Now, in that context... The prophet Isaiah, who you don't need to know anything about really other than that he's a prophet, um, he meets King Ahaz and he tells him to hold fast. Here's what he says. He says, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. This attack, Isaiah says, is, is, is not going to succeed. He assures him that these leaders against him, they're weak and they are going to fail and he can trust God. He says, you must stand firm in faith, he says to Ahaz. And he makes him an offer to help him do that. He says, ask the Lord your God for a sign. He's saying, ask God to give you a sign to reassure you that he is going to help you, then you can stand firm in faith. Isaiah says, go and ask him. But Ahaz refuses. We're told that King Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that is a statement that sounds like piety, doesn't it? Sounds like he's being very kind of religious and serious. I won't put the Lord to the test. In fact, Jesus says the same thing one time. But in this context, that statement is not piety. It's cowardice. It's a way of avoiding the hard road that Isaiah is calling to, of facing this threat by boldly relying on God. We know from elsewhere that instead of relying on God and standing firm, actually Ahaz made a fateful decision. He reached out for help to the massive, brutal empire of Assyria. Well, all of that is the background to the famous prophecy. Ahaz has tried God's patience, says Isaiah. 
He has refused to rely on him. He refused to ask for a sign. And so now, Isaiah says, God is going to give you what you wouldn't ask for. Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This bit's in your outline if you're looking for it. Um, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now many of us will be used to hearing these words as a prophecy about Jesus. And they are that. We'll come back to that. But these words also had a meaning in Isaiah's day. Because as the prophecy goes on, as Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't stop there, he keeps speaking. And as he continues, it's really clear that the political situation of the time is still in view. Have a look from verse 15. Isaiah says, he will be, that is this, this baby that's going to be born and called Emmanuel, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread those two armies that have banded together, that it will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, don't worry if you don't understand all the details there. Uh, what I think is clear, I hope is clear, is that it's, very, it, it, it's, it's obvious that Isaiah intended... This prophecy about this child who will be born and who will grow up, he intended as a sign to King Ahaz. So, what's going on here? How does this work? It's not super easy to get back inside this situation from so long ago, 2,750 years or so. And people disagree about how to understand this. All I can tell you briefly is how I have come to understand these words, but none of this is particularly original. I've just read it in different books. So start by lifting your eyes. Let's start by lifting our eyes to the bigger picture. Okay, Isaiah says, a boy is going to be born called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. In Hebrew, it's Emmanuel, with us God. That's, that's what it means. Um, and Emmanuel, God is with us, it's the kind of thing you might say when you have some special reason to feel that God is on your side, right? And you can imagine a woman calling her son Emmanuel. I mean, now it's really common, there's there's people, but in in those days, you know, um, calling your son God is with us, you might do that after some great victory or great moment of deliverance, But then Isaiah says, as we saw, this odd thing, that when this boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, which probably means when he was about 12 years old. That was, understood, that was a way of talking about the age. It's kind of early adolescence. Um, <clears throat> preparing this sermon has helped me because my oldest daughter is 12 and my <clears throat> middle son is 10 and I probably need to go a bit easier on him because apparently he doesn't know when to choose the right and the wrong. Anyway, um, By the time he's about that age, Isaiah says, he will be eating curds and honey. Now, what is that about? We easily think, okay, let's take a vote. Who thinks eating curds and honey is a good thing? Hands up. Okay, who thinks it's a bad thing? Nobody nobody voted. Like three people voted. Thanks. (laughs) Terrible audience participation. Okay, it's easy to think it is a good thing because it sounds like, I don't know, sweetened condensed milk. 
You know, it's kind of nice. You had curds and honey, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but I think it has a more specific meaning, which is a bit more ominous. Why is that? Well, the best clue is in the immediate context. If you're looking at this in a Bible or you look at them on your phone and you look ahead at verses 18 to 25, do it later if you want to, um, you'll see that Isaiah keeps talking about what he gets to at the end of our passage, how the king of Assyria is going to invade. And he goes on to talk about what this invasion is going to be like. And he says, the armies of, the king, the armies of Assyria, he says, are going to come and they are going to lay waste to your land. They're going to ruin the farmland so that where there were once vineyards and fields and produce, now there is just going to be briars and thorns. It's going to be a wreck. Um, but then at the middle of this section about how Assyria is going to come and basically just destroy the land and all the farmland, Isaiah says this in verse 21. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. So I'm sure you see the same words, curds and honey. So what that means is that this image of the boy eating curds and honey is actually, it's an image of survival. It's a picture, I think, of a situation in which the armies of Assyria have marched through and they've wrecked everything and there's survivors who, whose diet is, consists of what's left and there's a kind of weird oversupply of some things, which might be good things, but it's in the context of social collapse. This is the food of those who re remain in the land after Assyria has swept through and changed everything. I wonder if in our context, it'd be almost like saying today, if I said to you, a child is going to be born, and by the time he's 10, he will be eating nothing but Mars bars and kombucha. And there'll be no vegetables and no dairy. Mars bars got a bit of dairy in it, but you know what I mean. It would be a, it would be a sign, that would be a sign that something big had happened and changed everything. Actually, there'd been a kind of meltdown of the normal functioning. I think that's what Isaiah is saying. Because what Isaiah then says is going to happen is actually really clear. And what he kind of goes on about is not hard to understand. He says, Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. This alliance that Ahaz was so frightened of will be destroyed, which maybe would be a reason you might call your child Emmanuel. Right? If, 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 if there was this great deliverance of these two kings who were frightening you and you were shaking like the leaves of the trees and then they're suddenly gone, well, you might think God is with us. But then Isaiah says, in no time at all, Assyria will become an enemy and it will be a terrible time. And actually, Isaiah says, what this means for Ahaz is that this child, Emmanuel, is not a sign of God's blessing but a sign of God's judgment. This child, Emmanuel, who by the time he's 12 will be eating curds and honey, he is a sign that God is not with you and does not bless your plans. Okay, but still, who is this child? Who is this boy? And who is this 
virgin. Well, actually, the Hebrew word translated here as virgin is, is not just about virginity. In fact, it's not really about virginity. It's a word that mostly just refers to a young, unmarried woman, a, a teenage girl past puberty, basically. Right? That, that, that's what the word normally refers to. And so it would have been possible to understand what Isaiah was saying. When Isaiah says, a virgin will conceive, or just a young woman will conceive, it would have been possible to think that he just meant a young girl is going to get pregnant in the normal way, maybe after getting married, and have a son. It may be that Isaiah had a particular child in mind, actually. He himself had two sons who had a kind of symbolic significance. They, they didn't have the greatest names, so his first son is called Shi'ar Jasub, which means a remnant shall return. And that's kind of a hopeful name. But his second son is called Mahashalal Hashbaz, and that means speed to the spoil, quick to the plunder. So that's kind of a downer of a name, to be honest. And I don't know what that did to those guys, but maybe Isaiah had one of his own children in mind. Or maybe he was just seeing this, this child to be born as a symbol of the remnant, the people who would remain in Jerusalem. Actually, we, it's hard to be sure because it's a mysterious phrase. The virgin will conceive and give birth. It's a, it's a very strange phrase, even in the Hebrew. Actually, the term, at, it, it's not exactly about virginity, but it does refer to a girl of marriageable age, which normally did mean a virgin in Isaiah's day. That's actually why when Isaiah was translated into Greek in the 3rd century BC, I know this is getting into the weeds, but it's, it's pretty interesting. When this text was translated into Greek, the word that was chosen was the Greek word for virgin, parthenos. And that just means virgin. There also does seem to be something portentous about this birth. In Hebrew, it begins with the word behold. They left. I got them with the Greek. That's a shame. These things happen. In Hebrew, it begins with the term behold. And in the chapters that follow, Isaiah will begin to speak more about a child to be born, a son who will reign on David's throne again. And we're going to look at this over the coming weeks. Right? So I basically have said a lot about this text because it is, it's a weird, complicated, mysterious text. Back there in 730 B.C., Facing this incredibly fraught political situation, Isaiah says this weird thing that this young woman, probably a virgin, is going to have a baby and somehow that represents judgment on Ahaz, but does it represent something more? Did Isaiah see something more? Did he glimpse something on the distant horizon? Well, Christians have always thought that in the providence of God, he, he really did, actually. He spoke words that were a prophecy of something far off, something that came to dramatic fulfillment more than 700 years later. Because when Mary was found to be pregnant, she really was a virgin. This is a, 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 one of Raphael's pictures, I think, of the Holy Family. I love it because Joseph is so old in this picture. But I, I, maybe he was, actually. Um, I, f I, f I find this a really arresting picture. 
But when Mary was found to be pregnant, she really was a virgin. It's easy to disbelieve this, of course, and people have made fun of Christians for this belief since the beginning. All we're ever going to have is the testimony in the Gospels, which may very well go back to Mary herself or to the family of Jesus. Jesus' brothers and cousins became leaders in the early church. They don't strike me as liars, though, and I do believe it. And for those of us who believe this testimony, the truth is clear, though it is extraordinary. A young Jewish woman from a poor part of Galilee, engaged but not yet married, became pregnant. And the explanation for this was not that she had slept with her fiancé or with anyone else, but as Joseph is told in a dream, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This baby was a baby like no other, a special creation of God himself within the womb of Mary. We should pause, I think, to remember that the virgin birth must have come at a significant cost to Joseph and especially to Mary. How awful that first period must have been before Joseph knew the truth. How terrible and lonely for Mary. How many, I mean, how many of her family and friends would have believed her story? Ask, would you have believed it? Would you? How her reputation and Joseph's too must have fallen. Mary, that good girl, not so good now. Joseph, what a hypocrite. But they were called to endure this for the sake of something wonderful. The virgin birth of Jesus is not just a random, unnecessary wonder. Miracle, a miracle that God, God just showing off. No, it's massively important. Why is that? Because it shows us that Jesus was something really, radically new. The coming of Jesus was not something that just arose in the course of things, along the usual lines, in accordance with the normal ways things work out. It was not a product generated by the operation of natural systems and patterns. It was something unanticipated, unexpected, a dramatic new intervention by God. This is such good news, friends. Such good news, because it means that we are not doomed to the limits of what is normal and to the baked-in failures and weaknesses of this world. There is something more than the patterns that we are accustomed to. God does a new thing, and it gives hope to everyone who is overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world and by the impossibility of progress and by how stuck our problems are. All of that has been interrupted. It's been blasted open by the impossible appearance of this conception. And yet the virgin birth also means that this hope is for this world. It comes within this world. Jesus 
doesn't simply appear out of nowhere, like an alien crash-landed in the middle of the earth. No, he comes from Mary. This new thing, this new possibility is conceived within the womb of Mary. A real, ordinary human person. This hope comes as a real human baby, a son with a mother. And what that means is that this is not hope for others, it's hope for us. Because this baby truly is in a way that Isaiah could not possibly have foreseen. This baby really is Emmanuel, God with us. By the Holy Spirit, God the Son himself took on human nature, identifying himself with this conceived human life that would be born and would be named Jesus. God came to be with us radically and permanently, for he became one of us. In him, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians, just feel the weight of this sentence, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And you know, this is why the Christian church has always insisted that Mary can be rightly called Mother of God. Not, of course, because she was responsible for creating God in any sense. Right? Mary does not generate God. That's, that's madness and blasphemy. But the baby that she bore really was God by God's own grace and power. Matthew tells us the truth that here is the ultimate fulfillment of the word Isaiah had spoken. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us for real. Okay. What can we take from this reminder of how this prophecy arose, maybe a bit weirdly, in the time of Ahaz and Isaiah, and how it found its perfect last fulfillment in the womb of Mary? Well, I think we should notice first the way the sign of Emmanuel was actually not good news for King Ahaz. Rather than being a sign of God's blessing, it was a sign of judgment. This boy, whoever he was in Ahaz's day, he represented not the way God was on his side, but actually the way Ahaz was going to be left behind. The way his failure to trust God would lead to catastrophe it was a sign of coming judgment on Ahaz and his refusal. I think this reminds us that we have no right, no claim to the blessing and help and favor of God if we will not trust him, if we won't have him where he gives himself to us. God with us doesn't automatically become is not automatically good news. It can, in fact, be a word of judgment on our self-assurance and proud projects. Peace on earth 
we say at Christmas time. You know that phrase, peace on earth, you still see it on cards. We forget what that baby in the manger said when he grew up. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth, said Jesus? No, I tell you, but division. Christmas is not the news of God's favour upon all, all things as such. And whatever purposes and ideas we care to entertain. Christmas is not a talisman worn by Australian society guaranteeing safe passage through the dangers of the future. It is not the assurance that our world will not be upended, that our assumptions will never be questioned, that our complacency will not be exploded. It is no guarantee that we will be free to live in the prosperity we plan to and to enjoy things the way we expected to. It is not the assurance that our projects will be successful or that we are on the right side of history. And it is not those things because it is the news of God's favour in a particular place. God's purpose and blessing focused on Jesus Christ. Christmas is the news that God really has come to be with us in the Messiah. The child conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died and was buried. In Jesus, God is with us and our salvation. The eternal fullness of the light and life of God have burst into our world. A radical new thing that really does overcome sin and death and darkness. And by his spirit, God summons us into that life through faith in Jesus there in that place, God is with us and we may have his blessing. And this is the eternal purpose of God, friends, to be God with us by the Spirit in Jesus Christ. To take hold of that, we may be called to let go of many other things. But if we have Christ... We will, in the end, lack nothing. Christmas, therefore, is a time to finish. I think it's a time to look at Jesus with chastened wonder. Chastened wonder. Wonder that has been kind of purified and shocked into a new awareness. It's chastened, it's shocked like that because we realize that our purposes our assumptions, even our civilizations, they may well fall under the judgment of God. But it's still wonder because despite our failures, God does not abandon us but has come to be with us once and for all, for real. Let's pray.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.